Good day to be here. Friends, this passage, this is going to change lives today. No kidding. We're going to, we're going to, you're going to see some light bulbs go on, and it'll put you on a path to freedom. These four sentences are absolutely revolutionary. That's all there is to it. Let me tell you a story first uh, about a gentleman named Leslie King. Leslie King was handsome, and he was in a very financially well-off family. He was a charming man. Um, uh, he was a drunk, and he was a bully. And uh, Dorothy Gardner didn't find that out until uh, their honeymoon. And on their honeymoon, he came in staggering drunk and hammered on her because he could, because that's who he was. And she realized she had made a terrible mistake, but in 1912 in Nebraska, you can't just get a divorce. And so she thought she would just put her head down and get through this. And then she got pregnant. And Leslie Leslie King's parents were so aware of their, their son's evil that they came in and tried to help as much as they could. And, and they moved into the parents' house, and then they talked Dorothy into this plan, that if she would name the boy Leslie King Jr., when he sees those big blue eyes, maybe that will be the thing that will change him, that will, that will you know, ease his rage and that will settle down his, his, his need for alcohol. That'll be it. He's looking into the eyes of Leslie King Jr., and she bought it, and that was the plan, and it worked for 16 days. And Leslie King came home one night staggering and stammering, smelling like sweat, and the baby was crying, and Leslie started shouting at the baby, and so Dorothy shouted back. She hadn't done that before, and so Leslie started railing on and on about no woman's going to tell me what to do, and no little baby's going to ruin my life. And so he went into a drawer and pulled out a butcher knife that he got for his wedding present from his parents. But Dorothy had changed. She wasn't just a wife anymore. She was a mother. And so she stepped between him and the baby and just stared at him. And he dropped the knife and went out the door, and that was that. She got her divorce. She was ruined. She'd never get a dime from this, you know, loser. She ended up moving back um, to Michigan with her parents and moved in with them. And, boy, she loved that little boy. I mean, she loved that little boy, but she hated his name, Leslie King Jr., every time she said it. Anyway, uh, three years later, she meets, she meets a, a paint salesman, and they fall in love, and they get married, and they end up ha- raising three children together. One of them was Leslie. And one of the, one of the gifts that, that this new husband gave to his wife was a new name for that boy. Never adopted, never had the name changed, but he, he just saw what would happen to Dorothy when they'd call Leslie. And so he just said, you know what, let's just call him my name. And so they just called him Jerry. And, it, and from that day on, everybody just called him Jerry. And that's how he went through life. And, and, and 14 years later, uh, Jerry is uh, upperclassman in high school, and he's <clears throat> working the tables at some little diner. And in walks in this handsome and wealthy and sophisticated man, and it was his dad. And they made eye contact, and they had a conversation. And here comes Jerry is waiting. 
This is when he says, here's what happened. And there's a confession and an apology and maybe writing a check because he hadn't given a dime to raising him. He had none of that. Leslie King just talked about the weather and then ran out of words and then gave him a $25 tip and then left. And that day was a defining moment for Leslie Jr. There comes a point in a boy's life where he gets to choose to be a man. He gets to decide how he'll be decided. He gets to decide how he will be defined. And he could have been defined by being the son of an attractive, very successful, wealthy family, or he could have been defined and found his identity in the son of a paint salesman who loved his mother. Jerry chose wisely that day. The paint salesman, he couldn't make a lot of money, but he knew how to love Jerry's mother, and he knew how to love Jerry. And Jerry decided that he would never, ever pursue the acceptance of that other man with that other name. Instead, he would just bask in the love of this man and his love for his mother. Well, uh, he went off to college. He had to work his way through college, and he was pretty good in the kitchen, so he was cleaning plates through college. Uh, He was pretty busy. He didn't have much time for that because um, he was on the two-time national championship undefeated NCAA college football team where he was an All-American and the most valuable player. And then after college, he, um, one of the first things he did upon graduation is he finally did it. He finally made his identity formal. He changed his name. He was never adopted. His never name, he was never legally changed. Everybody just called him Jerry. And so he went down to the courthouse and did it himself. And it was a very good thing that he did that. Because years later, they're going to name an airport, a couple of highways, a library, an amphitheater after this Jerry. And if he wouldn't have changed his name, they would have all been named after that scoundrel, Leslie King. Turns out that poor kid from Omaha, he could have been a king, but instead he was a president. Gerald Randolph Ford. And Jerry Ford was a man of great grace. He was a gentle giant. In a classic, con- in the con- classic expression of uh, modern-day like, media, right, they, they would make fun of, of uh, President Ford for being kind of slow in the brain and clumsy. And yet none of his scoffers ever went to Yale Law School, and they were never recruited significantly and highly by the Detroit Lions or the Green Bay Packers. Jerry Ford never pushed back because his father told him how to turn the other cheek. He was a man of great grace, and he knew the power of grace. And he loved this country. And so he saw the vision of the only way to reconcile the madness that was going on around him was to give a pardon at the expense of his political career. He sacrificed his career so that he might pardon an unrepentant, narcissistic megalomaniac Richard Nixon. He did that because he understood the power of grace. Gerald Ford, he was a wise boy, and it turned out to be a wise man. 
because he knew where to find a different identity. That's what we're talking about today. This is the word of the day, identity. How you choose your identity is the single most important factor in all of your life. How you define yourself, right? How you accept yourself, your self-acceptance is going to affect how you respond to stress, love, marriage, parenting, work, all those things. That's how the rest of the book plays out. The, the, the way you decide your identity is the way you decide your life. You decide your identity, and your identity will decide your life. Now, what is your identity? That is, uh, it, it, your identity is the operating system, right? The operating system for all of the rest of the programs of your mind. It, uh, it, is, it is the primary default program of your heart. And here's the thing. Everyone has like a, a center of their identity. Most people never choose. They just let it happen to them, and they're a victim of it most of their whole lives. Some wise people will choose what their identity is. Still, the wisest of them all, they'll choose something as their identity that cannot be stolen or taken or, or diminished. That's what we're going to look at today. How do we find our identity in Jesus Christ? I'm going to show, try to explain what it means and how we actually do it. How do we apply the gospel, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to this thing that causes us to live our lives the way we do, our identity? Okay, you still confused about what identity is? You can back into it this way. This is diagnostic work. A couple questions. One's big, one's small. The big one is, think of the thing that if you were, if you were to lose this thing, or, or if, if you failed it, or it failed you, you wouldn't be able to live. Is there something in your life where that's the center cog, and if it doesn't happen, you won't know who you are anymore, right? So it could be like financial success, it could be, you know, a stellar reputation, it could be family or a family member, something like that where, and whenever that's threatened, you are in great fear. That's pretty drastic. That'd be a great thing for you to look at for homework. But here's, here's a more subtle way to look at it. What, um, what things, again, lost or possibly not experiencing whatever causes you to feel threatened, would cause you to feel uh, rage, would, or despondent or despairing? Right? Those little, those, these, are, these are trigger emotions that say, whoa, 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 something's getting too close to the heart of my identity. That's how you kind of know what it is. It's, it's, whatever, it's whatever you uh, set your heart to. It's whatever you point your mind is meditating on. This is what it is. is this, the identity is where you get your worth. It's what drives you. Okay? That, it's what drives you. It's where you get your worth. That's your identity. Let me give you a couple examples uh, that are somewhat common. They're comical, but they're common. Okay? One's positive, one's negative. The first one um, positive. I'm going to heap it on. Uh, her name will be Barbie. Barbie was born beautiful, gorgeous young lady, and everybody told her that growing up, and that's good. But somewhere along the line, she decided, without deciding, that she would be pretty Barbie. That was her identity. Didn't help that she was the cheerleader of a big high school and 10,000 people in the crowds, you know, at 17 years old would do whatever she told them to do. It just fed that identity, right? And then um, just, to, just to add 
more to it. She came from a prestigious family uh, with, with great reputation in the community and was even a debutante, if you know what that means. So she had this coming out. Now listen, here's what I want you to hear. Those are all good things. They're awesome, right? They're good things. And second, second part of this, they, they have nothing to do with her. These are the cards she got dealt. It wasn't like she wanted these things or, or willed these things upon herself. They just are. But here's the thing. Whether they're good or not, they become bad when you make them your identity. When, you, when, when pretty Barbie allows these experiences to define her, and the reason it's dangerous and not, not wise, it's foolish, whether she chooses to or not to, is because it's so easy to lose these attributes that define you, right? So all it takes is some sort of scandal in her family, and then she loses that, or her family becomes impoverished, and then that was her identity, or even worse, in the context of pretty Barbie, <laughs> she has to stay pretty, or she's just Barbie, and that's not her anymore. And so, man, it's hard to stay tan when you get older. And listen, you never want to get in a marathon race with a calendar. It always wins. And so they, Barbie would have to become, pretty Barbie would have to become compulsive, right, about exercising and, and, and diet and those sorts of things and missing out on a lot of life. It would affect her ability to ever be content and ever be peaceful. You see how it just kind of happened to her, though? She didn't choose. She allowed it to be chosen for her. Uh, here's a negative example. How about Biff? Okay, we'll use a name that no one has, I hope. Uh, Biff. Uh, Biff comes from a background where, you know, his family, maybe his, let's just say his dad was a perfectionist and would ride him hard and would never be happy with whatever he did, maybe even abusive or neglectful. It doesn't matter. Uh, he comes from a, maybe in a, a poverty and kind of a low-income background. Okay, the point is, it's not he didn't do this. It's the hand he got dealt. It's not really, it doesn't matter. What matters is this, is it, if Biff listens to his experiences and his culture and his crazy dad because he will choose without choosing to be loser Biff. And then loser Biff has to live his life as loser Biff. And loser Biff gets married and his wife is looking at him going, you're 40 years old and you will not stand up even in a polite way to your maniacal father? Why? Where is there no courage in you? It's because his identity is loser Biff. There's no courage there. And so, again, your identity is the operating system of your heart. It is the programming of, of your mind. And all the other actions that you do are a product of that. They're coming out of this, you know, like the, the main operating system that you have. So today, here's the point. Here's today is how do we get our identity to be in the context of Jesus Christ. How do we get the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ on our behalf? We put our faith in that. How does that become our identity? That would be a stabilizing factor because, friends, this is the power of the gospel in our life. This topic right here, the righteousness of Jesus Christ becoming our identity pushing out everything else because we choose to, and that becomes our identity, and then we're free. We've talked about Jesus being a different kind of Savior, not in degree. We've talked about the gospel being a different kind of salvation. Now we're talking about a whole different kind of identity. That's what we're talking about today. That's the theme. Now, when we look at these passages, these four sentences here, I want you to be listening for the way we live in the present is to have our identity with, Je with Jesus in the past and with Jesus in the future. I'm going to say that 72 more times. 
Let's read it. Chapter 3, verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died with him. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Boom. I'm sure you see right off the bat, two phrases repeated, almost exactly the same. Set your, set your mind on things above. Set your heart on things above. Where is your, who, what is your identity? It is where you set your mind. It is where you set your soul. Paul here is talking about the definition of identity, and this is what he's saying. He's saying this is how it happens right here, is what you set your heart and mind to. The rest of the book, honestly, the rest of Colossians is now going to be a product of these four verses. Everything else is going to be about how to apply a whole new identity. Oh, sure, it's going to bleed into everything else in your life. And so he's saying this. You change your identity, friends, it'll change your life. So how, how do you set your mind on things above? How, how do you set your heart towards this definition of who you are? How do you apply the gospel? How do you apply the gospel to your identity? Here it is. Here's the answer to the question. Boom. We are to live in the present with our identity determined already, by the way, by our past and our future with Christ. Let's read that out loud. Okay. That's how we get identity in Christ. We are to live in the present with our identity determined by our past and our future with Christ. I'm going to give you another try at that. Okay, here we go. We are to live in the present with our identity determined by our past and our future with Christ. With Christ. If you are here last week, you saw with in red. Here we go again, because with is the essence of what we're talking about. It's all throughout chapters one and two, and this, friends, is the heart of the gospel. This is the logic of the gospel. This is the passion of the, of the gospel. The actual, the, the actual gospel is this, that when, what, wherever Jesus was, where, whatever Jesus is, legally, we are. That's the gospel. That's the way God sees it. I don't, it doesn't matter what you think or believe. This is God's view on the gospel. With Christ means everything that's true in Christ is true in us. That's the wonderful part of the gospel. That's what it means to be united with him. That's why Paul, throughout these passages, has been just going on and on about being with Jesus or in Jesus. Look at all the things in these few sentences. Look at all the places we've been. Look at all the things we've done together in him. Look, since we've been raised with him, seated at the right hand of God, for we died with him, and now we're hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then also we will appear with him in glory. So you must, the point is you must live in the present, this experience we have in this lifetime, we live in the present based upon the reality that we were with Christ in the past and we were with Christ in the future. This is the point of growing in Christ, is growing in our understanding of this fact, that the righteousness that we have is current because we are with Christ currently. This is what we work on in believing. This is what we work on in knowing and comprehending. Okay? Most of this is past tense. Point is, it's already happened. It, that's the way God sees it. 
um, another way of looking at it. The gospel, okay, the, the truth that we're talking about here. Another way of looking at it is the greatest truth in living the Christian life, the essence of living the Christian life, of being a Christian, is, is not emulating Jesus, good thing. Loving Jesus, good thing. Uh, following Jesus' teaching, good thing. Right? Serving, good. All the, that's not the essence of it. This is the essence, that I, have an, I am identified with Christ. My identity, from the Father's point of view, my identity with Christ is together. And whatever he is, I am. Wherever he's been, I've been. We are somehow seen together. The Father looks down and can't see me because the shadow of Jesus Christ is over me. In my personal experience, watch this. Didn't seem like it at the time. None of the bells were ringing, but on, in a dorm room off of 24th Street, just west of campus, in 1980, I was on my knees crying, and I said, Jesus, I can't do this anymore. I can't live with this guilt. I want you to be my Savior, and you can be my King. And in that moment, I went back 2,000 years and mounted a cross with him. And then I went into a cave with him, and then I was raised with him. That's what this passage says. It's true. That's my identity. I've got to catch up to that. I have to live that way. I'm hidden in him. Here's how you have an identity in Christ. Boom. You are to live in the present with your identity already determined by our past and our future with Christ. It's, 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 it's not a matter of having it happen. It's a matter of believing what already has. Okay. Now, okay. That's all good. How do I do that? Right? I mean, I'm, I'm walking down. So how do I live in the present, keeping in mind that I'm in Christ in the past in the, and in the future? Here's how. First thing you do is it, it says do not, uh, like, right, fix your, you know, do not, fix your mind and heart on things here. So the first thing you do is you realize you're self-aware enough to say, you know what, I'm trying to steal identity from maybe success or popularity or beauty or some of the negative things, right? Like, like loser Biff, because that's where his identity is. That part one is do not fixate your mind on things here, but it says, you know, you've got to fixate those things on what God has done. It, this is, listen to me, this is not positive thinking. Okay, this is truthful thinking. By the way, this is beyond your ability to imagine anyway. And it's not even, I would say, even po truthful thinking. It's better, it's, it's truthful imagining. And the reason I say that is because of the graphic nature of the vocabulary that Paul is using here to get us to think, feel, and enjoy these truths. He uses, he uses, he uses such picturesque words so that we might see it, like in our mind's eye. So, that, so that we would imagine it, and then we would believe it. If we can just fairy tale this thing into our lives because it's true, then maybe we might live that way. I mean, look at the words that he's choosing. You were dead with him. You were raised with him. You were hidden with him. He is your life, and you will be with him in glory. Those are picture words. Okay, those, those aren't words to, those aren't words to, 
to, to memorize. Those are, those are videos to play back. Okay, I mean, look at the first one, um, death with him, death with him. We, we, get, we get pretty Barbie over here. We say, pretty Barbie, we need you to apply this. I want you to interview uh, dead Barbie because she's dead. Ask her. Ask her about how important it is that she has these trophies and plaques and smooth skin now. How's that tan? It's hard to see with that gray skin. Nobody cares, and you shouldn't either, pretty Barbie. If you die with him, it's already happened. If you were to believe that you would die with him, then you'd be free from the slavery of that mirror and that calendar. And then you could turn out from yourself and you could see the beauty of other people's souls and how to serve them. You could become self-forgetful. That's something you've never had, pretty Barbie. You can get this from an interview with dead Barbie. I mean, loser Biff, right? You just pull out the thing in the morgue, loser Biff. Touch him, poke him. All those tapes playing, they're dead. So how about you start getting courageous? How about you get some courage? Because the next phrase is you were raised with him. Raised with him. The idea there is that if the father were to put on Jesus' goggles, right, puts on these glasses, and he looks at you and me who's put their faith in Christ, he sees us as his son. We are raised with him. He sees us beautiful. He sees us holy. He sees us an entirely different person from the guy that went in the cave than the person who came out of it. There's some great churches, uh, high liturgical churches, right? More formal churches, Catholics and Lutherans, I know. They do a thing that's, that's, again, graphic for a young soul to grasp. It's called confirmation. When you get to an age of, it's supposed to be age of accountability, you're supposed to, you know, learn some things about the faith and what's being declared about the gospel. And then you kind of say, you know, as an adult, I'm in or out. And if you're in, if you say, yeah, 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 oh, yeah. I want this to count. I want to die with him, and I want to raise with him. They'll, they'll say, well, you, need to, you get to pick a new name then. Because before your identity was with your parents, and it's not anymore. Your identity was with Christ. So what, uh, what do you want people to call you? Isn't that awesome? So you could just walk around going, my, my confirmation name is James. It would have been great if I had done that when I was 20, because people would come up to me and say, hey, Matt. No, nope, no, no, James. Matt died. It was a good thing. So... We died with him. We're raised with him. The third thing he says, we are hidden with him. Awesome picture of safety and security. Picture this, you being a little kid and you're the child of the king and something happens that scares you or frightens you or threatens you. You're not going to get that job. You might get laid off. They're coming to get your house, whatever it might be. And it's, it's threatening your identity. And so you run underneath the giant royal gown of the great king. Not one of these simple kings that inherits his domain, but the king who earned and fought for everything he rules. He has scars on his head and his feet and his hands. He rules what he conquered. And you're hiding underneath there, and I ask you this. Are you slunched over and cowering? No, you're not. Because you know who he is and what he's done. And so you stand strong underneath there, hidden and all, and you'll peek your little head out every once in a while and say, who will raise a charge against the Lord's anointed, against the king's kid? 
And then you'll go back and put it behind you and say, you take it from here. You take it from here. There'd, there'd be no bitterness. There'd be no pride in you. There'd be no reason for sarcasm because you are hidden in Christ. You were dead with him. You were raised with him. You were hidden with him. Who is, right? Who is your life? I love how, I love how there's this rhythm and then he just kind of goes rap. Who is your life? Who is this? It's, it's the, he is the beacon of your soul. It's not like he's your first love. He's the love that if you lose, you don't exist anymore. Right? He, he's, he's your formal north. He's, he's the rock in your storm. He is your life. There is nothing else even competing with that. You're with him. You're with him in his death. You're with him in his resurrection. You were raised with him. You are hidden with him. He is your life. And then finally, the fifth thing Paul says is you will be with him in glory. You will be with him in glory. That means when all this paper mache reality that we experience and everything gets torn up and thrown away and we see our souls for who we are, we will, God sees us with that glorified body right now as though we had the body of Jesus Christ. And when all this stuff is thrown away, we'll be there. We'll be it's sooner than you think. But, but there's no time in God's economy, so he sees all that now. This is your identity. If your identity is in Christ, this is inheriting his righteousness. You died with him. You raised with him. You're hidden with him. He is your life, friends. And then you're, and then you're with him in glory. That's how you find identity here. That's what it means to be with him. Look at it. Friends, look at that. You died with him. You raised with him. You're hidden with him. He is your life. Glory with him. Let's say that together. This is it. This is the ringer. This is how we ring this bell. Let's go. Died with him, raised with him, hidden with him. Who is your life? Glory with him. Homework for the next 20 to 50 years, work on that outline. I'm not kidding. Because the rest of life is, is I am this in Christ. And that's why we rejoice in this and we, uh, like, we relish in this. And this is why we sing songs to remind us of what's happening in our souls, to find our identity and what, how the way God sees us in our identity. This is when we never stop reflecting on these truths because this is what we set our minds to this truth. We set our hearts to these facts about our identity. That's why he says that. Not stuff around here. Are you kidding? You know? So look, let's, tech, let's take this five-point outline for test drive, okay? Let's just see what happens. Like, again, let's just remember some primary emotion f flies off because something might be threatened that we couldn't live without or even, e even a simple secondary or tertiary emotion where we're kind of threatened, right? Something, uh, something's getting too close to an artificial, right, identity. Let's think about something. Like our past. Like our past. Like uh, pretty Barbie and loser Biff. Some, they need to sit down and ask this question. Why do you give so much power to things that are so shallow? Your fading beauty or some stupid old man that makes fun of you? Why do you give them that? At what age do you plan to be free of lies because of the power of the truth? that you died with him, you raised with him, you're hidden with him, he is your life. And you'll be seeing glory with him. That's how it works in real life with your past. Here's, here's how it is in parenting. It's very easy in parenting, very easy in parenting to get our identity from our children. 
And, and I mean, it's, you can't win. If they turn out mildly okay, then you get all weird and proud. I mean, it's like a spraying on too much cologne. We, we smell you coming, right? It's like, oh, yeah, I know, the kids are fine. Or they don't turn out so good, and then you're moping around. Why are you attaching it to something so volatile? I, I remember when I was a young parent, the first time this happened, right? You know, it, it happens in a second, where you're looking at your child, you're going, oh, no, discipline is needed for the safety of this child. And then it's like, uh-oh, everybody's looking at me, and they're thinking I'm a bad parent. You know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, now it's all about me. That happened when, when our, our boy was younger. We were coming out of the old auditorium. I think it was Christmas Eve. It was late night, and there were only five of us left. It was Ryan, Melinda, and myself, and the, and the senior pastor and his wife. They never had kids. I'm not sure they understood what was going on. But we get outside, and Ryan drops his pants and starts tinkling all over the deck, right out there. There's still a stain. And I, I'm watching all this happen, and I'm seeing the senior pastor and his wife look at me, and I'm like, uh-oh, he's a bad parent. And so I do what I'm supposed to do. I point to Melinda and say, you know. He was a small child. He was like 14 or something. It was not a big deal. And, and so Melinda says, so you think that these people think I taught him how to do that? When you stop doing that, he'll stop doing that. And that was the night that I was potty trained. Most of that's a true story. But if you could detach yourself from your children because you died and were raised and are hidden and he is your life and you'll be seeing him with him in glory, then you could be an objectively loving parent. You could see what that child needs independent of your ego being entangled with it. You would not be a compulsive parent. You would be a free parent. That's how it shows up. That's when your identity is altered. It happens in your marriage, right? You, you think if, if you get love, you'll give love. And when you see yourself in this new identity, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you're going to find out you have a Nile River full of the love of God, and you can fill up both cups with that. But you're going to have to change your identity. It's already happened. You have to believe it. Here's how it happens. Here's how we live. We live in the present with our identity already determined by our past and our future with Christ. So every time you feel that threat, Every time you feel that swell of pride, you say this, that's not me. That's not where I get my identity. I don't need you in my life. It'd be fun if I had that or didn't have that. But I get my joy from an eternal source I am defined by. That I died with him and I rose with him and I'm hidden with him. He is my life. And someday soon, right now in heaven, I'll be with him in glory. That's who I am, and I'm going to work my way through this. Tim Keller did a masterful job. Kind of, again, I think the words here are so that we would more imagine this to be true. Like, visualize so that we might believe it to be true. It's not to be memorized, it's to be enjoyed. And so Tim Keller says, you know what? The story of the gospel is like, it is the ultimate of all stories. It is the fantasy, the legend, the myth, right? It, it, all, everybody else is copying the story of the gospel. And how is that story? What's the plot line? You have ordinary people living in an ordinary place, doing ordinary things. And then they're stolen. 
and they're taken off to some extraordinary place. They're taken into a different time or to a different planet or to a whole different dimension. And, and in that other dimension, things are expansive, right? It's, it's, it's bigger than the life they had before. And good is good, and evil is evil. And goodness, we find ourselves in these storylines of meeting kings and queens and nobility and valor, and the evil is unchained. And then there's this catastrophic, overwhelming, everyone gives for this one battle for what, is, what rules. And the story ends almost always the same. Against overwhelming odds, good triumphs over evil. And then the story continues. These ordinary people that are not so ordinary anymore, they have to go back home to their ordinary place with ordinary people living an ordinary life. But if they haven't been bent by the experience, they've been straightened by it. And now they're more than they were. They're, they're, they have great freedom and they have great power because they're remembering where they were and what they'd experienced. They are fixing their minds on things in the past that were true. They are fixing their mind, or their hearts rather, on the experiences they had together. They're changing their identities. And so now they laugh more and louder. They cry more easily. They experience the fullness of life. They're tougher and harder and nicer and softer because they've been to a place where they could do that. And now they've brought it home with them. And yet, generally speaking, again, almost every story has this as a plot line. Listen, these, these, these foreigners that have come back home, they're, they're so kind and self-sacrificing because in their story in that other planet or in that inner, other dimension, usually the hero, the most noble of all, some woman or some man, had to die in that war so that everyone else could live. And so when they come back home, they want to be like that. They want to give their life for other people. They change their identity because of whom they've associated with. They set their mind and they set their heart on that old hero. That story is our story. That's the story of the gospel. When we imagine that to be true, when it captivates our imagination, when it consumes our mind and our heart, it will change our identity. It's, and then, and then you will experience who you already are. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of Jesus Christ as the focal point of our identity. Told you. Those are four good sentences. I'm glad we came today to study those. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for these words of truth that we have an anchor, we have a rock, we have a beacon, we have a North Star. It is you. Lord, I'd ask that you would help us fixate our mind and our heart on the truths that are real, but maybe just too good to imagine or believe, that we died with you and we rose with you and we are hidden with you. You are our life. We can't wait for glory. Lord, I'd ask that we would be a church that even collectively finds our identity in that safe place with being with you, your bride. We are so grateful.
Let us be heroes of an experience from a different world. That we, we, we died and went to heaven, and now we've came back here just to show the way life could be. Let's be that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.